0: Good morning again. You can take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to be looking at the entire chapter, all 15 verses, 1 Samuel chapter 11. Before we read from God's Word, let's remember just briefly here where we are in the story of God's people. As we saw in chapter 10, Saul has been publicly recognized as the first king of Israel. But almost immediately, Saul faced conflict. Look back at how chapter 10 ended. Verse 27, some worthless fellows question, how can this man save us? So even though God's will has been made clear, there is still this question lingering. There's this question hanging in the air. How is this kingship going to work out? How's it going to go for Saul? Well, chapter 11 is the answer to that lingering question. The worthless fellows question where salvation will come from, and God now gives them a resounding answer in these 15 verses. So as we read here from the text, listen for the emphasis on salvation. Three times, beginning, middle, and end, salvation shows up in the chapter. That's the theme of 1 Samuel 11, salvation. So, with that in mind, let's read now from God's Word. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church through His inspired author, beginning in verse 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if no one will save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud." Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, what is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces, and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of messengers, saying, whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus you shall say to the men of Jabesh Gilead, tomorrow by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people into three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord And there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us and for our good. Let's pray now and ask God's Spirit to illuminate our time together. Father, we praise You as the sovereign, almighty God of all creation, who has spoken everything into existence and has spoken to us very clearly in the Word made flesh, Your Son Jesus Christ, and in the Word written, given to us in the Scriptures. Father, we pray that You would help us now by Your Spirit to hear what it is that You have said to Your church. We pray, Father, that You would grant us discernment to know truth from error. That You would grant us grace to hold fast to the things that are true. And that You would open our eyes, Father, to behold wonderful things out of Your Word. God, apart from Your work, among us, by the Spirit, we will not see, we will not believe, and we will not rejoice. So we ask You, we plead with You, Father, in the name of Christ, to come and help us to see. I pray that You would be with my words, God, to make them clear and truthful and faithful. I pray that You would be with Your people, that they would feast now upon the truth of the Scriptures and be encouraged. We ask this in Christ's name and for His glory. Amen. What comes to your mind when you think about King Saul? Now, I know that you probably don't think about King Saul that much, but let's just say this morning you are thinking about him. What comes to your mind when you think about Saul, the first king of Israel? Well, for most of us, it's most likely not anything good. We think of Saul's irrational fits of rage or his paranoid hunt for David. When I was a kid in Sunday school, every flannel graph that included Saul, he looked mad all the time, with a spear ready to kill somebody. So maybe you think about his rage, maybe you think about his paranoia, or maybe you remember the tragic final moments of Saul's life where he falls on his own sword as he's surrounded by his enemies. Sadly, those are the memories we most often associate with King Saul and understandably so. To a large degree, Saul's life is a tragedy that illustrates the dire consequences of disobedience. And that's why it's so important that we pay close attention to this chapter. As you heard when we read, this chapter is no tragedy. In fact, it's just the opposite. This is kingship as God intended it to work. For all of his flaws, here Saul acts as the king should act. He displays leadership. He sacrifices for the sake of the people he leads, and he accomplishes the task God had given him to do. This is the high point of Saul's life. The high point of his reign. Yes, we know a downfall is coming, but here in chapter 11, Israel's king acts as he ought. And in light of that, we have to ask the necessary question why is this moment so starkly different from the rest of Saul's life? What makes chapter 11 such a high point? Why is this chapter so good? And initially, we might think the answer is simple. This moment is different because Saul does the right things. But is that really the answer? Is that really the reason? Friends, I'll contend that it's not. You see, the value of this chapter is that it forces us to slow down and think carefully about the true source of Saul's success. The real reason why this is a high point. And when we do that, what we find is that Saul's success is not ultimately about Saul. It's about God. Specifically, God's grace to intervene on behalf of His people. Brothers and sisters, if you only hear one truth today, I pray it would be this truth. Saul's success is a platform for God to display, once again, the overarching truth of the Bible. The truth that salvation belongs only to the Lord. Now I want to show you from the text how this works. It's not enough just to summarize the truth. It's not enough just to get a little snapshot we want to dive deep into this together so that each each of us sees with eyes of faith how God's glory is presented in these verses you'll notice this chapter follows a problem solution pattern in verse 1 there is a crisis and by verse 15 there is a celebration so it moves from problem to the solution and that pattern that movement gives us the direction for our study we want to go scene by scene and pay attention to how God does This great salvation for His people. And it begins in verses 1-3 to with the first scene. The oppression of God's people. The oppression of God's people. Saul doesn't have to wait long before his reign is tested. Soon after he is proclaimed king, crisis strikes and it is severe. The crisis comes from Nahash the Ammonite. Who has attacked the city of Jabesh Gilead? Jabesh Gilead's on the eastern side of the Jordan River. That's where the Ammonites live. So it's just a hop, skip, and a jump up from Nahash's capital to take over the city of Jabesh. If you recall your Old Testament history, then you'll know Israel has a long and checkered past with the Ammonites. The Ammonites were the descendants of Lot's. Immoral relationship with his own daughter. Remember, Abraham had a nephew named Lot. Lot lived in the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. God destroyed the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. So then Lot had children by his own daughters. Well, the Ammonites are descendants of that immoral relationship. So when you read in verse 1 of Nahash the Ammonite, we know this is the latest installment of a long-running extended family feud. This goes back a ways. However, even though the conflict goes back a ways, this instance is particularly distressing. You'll notice Nahash's oppression is cruel. Look at verse 2. The people of Jabesh ask for a treaty. That's not unusual. This is what you would do. You would ask the person for a treaty, an agreement that would spare your life in exchange for service to Nahash. And normally, these treaties were sealed with an animal sacrifice. But notice what Nahash demands. Everyone's right eye now, that's, that's gruesome. Can you imagine it? All the people of a city lined up and Nahash's soldiers going down with some really awful looking tool scooping people's eyes out. It's cruel. And that cruelty should heighten the sense of desperation. This is no mild disagreement. This is a terrible crisis. That's not all. You'll notice Nahash's oppression is also humiliating. Look at the end of verse 2. Why is Nahash pursuing this cruel plan in order to, quote, bring disgrace on all Israel? Nahash doesn't pick the right eye by chance. Without your right eye, a man could not be expected to fight in battle. So if you held your shield in your left hand that covered your left eye, with your right eye, you would see to strike back against the enemy. So no right eye, you can't fight. That's what Nahash is after here. He intends to make the people of Jabesh his slaves. He doesn't just want their money or their possessions. He wants to humiliate them. Still, he's not finished. You'll also notice Nahash's oppression is arrogant. Look at verse 3. The elders of Jabesh ask for a week's time to decide. They want to see if anyone will come to their aid. And surprisingly, Nahash agrees. You see the arrogance, friends? This is a game to Nahash. He takes pleasure out of watching these Israelites frantically call for help. Sure, he could squash them right now, but why not let it simmer for a while so that the entire city is infected with fear? He's incredibly arrogant. When you put all this together, you get a sense of just how helpless the people of Jabesh are at this point. They have no ability to save themselves. Don't miss that connection from verse 3. They are entirely dependent on salvation coming to them from outside of themselves. And that's how the first scene ends. If God's people are going to be saved, it will be because somebody else saves them. Friends, before we move on to the next scene, I do want to highlight the contemporary significance of this moment from Israel's history. The times have changed, but this kind of impression endures. In fact, it never goes away. Nahash the Ammonite may be dead, but his kind continues. And the tactics may have changed, but the purpose is the same. This is how the world treats the people of God. With cruel arrogance that is intended to humiliate them. And therefore, we must not be fooled into thinking we can somehow accommodate the world and find peace. Do we not remember the words of the Lord Jesus himself from John 15? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before you. And that if is a since the world is going to hate you. It's a sobering reminder. And it's one that we need to hear, especially in our day. The world does not want a peaceful coexistence with the people of God. The world wants our subjection, our slavery. I don't mean that every single person you meet is somehow plotting against Christians in some dark room. I don't mean that. But I do mean that the world as a system is always seeking to squash God's people. And yet, what do we hear the so-called strategists and counselors of our day saying to the church? If you'll just tone down the message, then people will listen. If you'll only give a little on this issue or that controversy, then you'll gain a better platform. If you'll just adopt this new method and drop all the talk about a bloody cross, then you'll gain influence. Brothers and sisters, that kind of thinking is foolish. It's a siren song that sounds good, but in the end, it leads to our destruction. So let me say it very clearly. We cannot accommodate the world to win the world. It doesn't work that way. That's not how the Kingdom of God works. God's Kingdom is built upon the truth that there's only one God. And if you want to know Him, you have to come to Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, who laid down His life on the cross as an atonement for sin. That's not the message the world wants to hear. But it's the only message we have. You cannot accommodate the world in hopes of winning the world. So, brothers and sisters, let's not listen to those siren songs. I want the church to grow. I want to see more lost people saved. Don't you? Don't listen to the siren songs, however. Instead, let's be prepared and be ready to respond as the Lord Jesus taught us. How's that, you say? To love our neighbors as ourselves. That's the best answer to hostility. To contend for the truth, even when the world considers that truth backwards and foolish. To commit ourselves afresh to passing on the faith to the next generation. And most importantly of all, to remember what else Jesus said from John's Gospel. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. So friends, the first scene here in chapter 11 is sobering. It's sobering. And it does remind us of what we can expect in the world. We can expect opposition. But thankfully, oppression is not where the passage ends. In verses 4-11, to we find encouragement in our second scene, the work of God's Spirit. The work of God's Spirit. Now, what I love about this scene is how clearly God makes His point to us. You don't have to know Hebrew or have been to seminary to see the key point of this scene. It's verse 6. Everything changes from verse 6 onward. This is the turning point, both for Saul and for the people of Israel. Notice what happens. Word of Nahash's cruelty reaches the town of Gibeah and the people are overcome with grief. Gibeah and Jabesh... Share some history. You can read about that history in Judges 21 if you would like. But for now, it's enough to note that these two towns share deep roots and family ties. So that Jabesh's suffering is Gibeah's grief. But then the turning point comes. Saul hears the awful news and suddenly, without warning and without Saul's permission, things change. Look again at verse 6. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. Now, if you remember Israel's history, then this moment should sound familiar to you. This is not the first time the Spirit has rushed upon someone with power. Think about the book of Judges. Over and over, God's people in the book of Judges are oppressed. And over and over, God rescued His people by sending His Spirit to raise up a deliverer. And it would come with this language of the Spirit rushing upon someone. It happened to Othniel. It happened to Gideon. It happened to Samson. And now it happens with Saul. He's the latest in this line of Spirit-empowered deliverers. And that's the connection we're meant to make at this point. Don't ask the question, is Saul saved? That's the wrong question for now. Ask the question, how does he do this? By the power of God's Spirit. At this point in Israel's history, Saul is the Lord's man. He is the one whom God empowers to deliver His people. And indeed, that deliverance comes quickly. Notice how rapidly things unfold in verses 7 to 11. Saul rallies the people in verse 7, organizes an army in verse 8, encourages the oppressed in verse 9, and then finally routs the wicked in verse 11. That's a stunning turn of events. A situation that seemed hopeless is now full of hope. A people who were helpless have now been Delivered. And how did it all happen? What was the turning point, friends? Verse 6. It all happened through the work of the Spirit. It's so important that we keep things in proper order here. It is very easy to miss the point. It was not that Saul used the Spirit to deliver Israel. It's that the Spirit worked through Saul to save God's people. You see, everything turns on the Spirit's work. When we read this, we're drawn to the size of the army or the strategy of the battle or why do you got to kill so many Ammonites? But verse 6 is like a lighthouse that cuts through the fog and draws us back to what should get our attention. Not Saul, not the battle, not the strategy, but the work of God's Spirit. Saul may have led the army, but it was the Spirit who brought salvation to God's people. And what an important reminder this becomes for Israel. Remember, friends, Israel asked for a king because they were tired of walking by faith. Do you remember that in chapter 8? They said, give us a king like the nations because they look like they've got it better than we do, so we want that. They were tired of walking by faith. They wanted something new. New leadership. A new institution. Anything other than what we have, God... So what does God do here in chapter 11? He mercifully reminds Israel that what they need most is not new leadership, but a renewed dependence on God who works by His Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this is Scripture's reminder to us as well. You see, we're a lot more like Israel than we care to admit. The application for us doesn't come from Saul, but from Israel. This isn't a text about how you need more Holy Spirit power. This is a text about revealing your heart and what you're trusting in. How easy it is for us to grow tired of simply walking by faith. How quickly we decide that what we need is something new new circumstances, new strategies, maybe even new institutions. Do you ever start to think like that? I do. There are days when the normalcy of the Christian life, when the normalcy of our church seems powerless to me to deal with what the world is throwing at us. And after a while, I start to long for something new. Something fresh. But Friends, that's precisely the faulty idea God confronts here in 1 Samuel 11. We don't need new institutions or new ways of tapping into the Spirit's power. It's actually just the opposite. We need to beware our tendency to look for salvation in something other than God. Listen, friends, I won't pretend to know how the church should answer all the challenges facing her today. I don't know. And I won't pretend to be able to give you enough practical counsel to deal with all this world throws at you. Some of you are enduring trials of faith that would crush me. I don't know what to tell you other than I love you and I'm praying and I'm listening. I don't know what to say. But I will stand up here and with every last breath call us to renewed dependence on God who saves by His Spirit. That was the lesson God gave Israel in this chapter. Even with a king, it's God who saves. And that's the same lesson He gives now to us. So, brothers and sisters, let me just offer you these simple encouragements. Just simple encouragements. Keep pressing on to know God through His Word. It's through God's Word that the Spirit works with power. Keep striving to love one another and bear each other's burdens. It's through the life of the church that the gifts of the Spirit are seen and enjoyed. And most important of all, keep anchoring your hope in Christ. It's through His Gospel that the Spirit works to save. You see, we may not like to hear this, but in every season, what the church needs is not something new, but a renewed dependence on God who works among us by His Spirit. So let's give ourselves to that. Well, that brings us to the final scene. We've seen the oppression of God's people. We've seen the work of God's Spirit. Now, in verses 12 to 15, we get the last scene that ties it all together the joy of God's reign. The joy of God's reign. This scene is short, but it's powerful. Here at the end, we see the people of Israel relating to God as they ought. From the king on down, this is a snapshot of the good life. This is how things are supposed to be under the Old Covenant. Notice with me how the picture plays out. There are three distinct features with each one building until the end. To start it off, Saul humbly gives glory to God. Look at verse 12. After the victory, the people remember those worthless fellows who questioned Saul, and they decide that they should probably die. Apparently, the people of Israel have suddenly developed a high sense of justice. Then something unexpected happens. Saul the king intervenes on behalf of his enemies. Notice verse 13. But Saul said, not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. You see, Saul grasps the weight of what has happened. He gets it. There's no need to defend Saul's honor because the victory doesn't belong to him. The victory belongs to the Lord. This is a day for celebration, not for vengeance. And so Saul does what Israel's king should do. Instead of honoring himself, he humbly gives glory to God. Along with this, we also see there's a renewed allegiance to God. Notice verse 14. Samuel the prophet Calls the people to Gilgal in order to renew the kingdom. Now, that phrase is significant. What does it mean to renew the kingdom? Well, to answer that, we have to peek ahead to next week's passage, chapter 12. And as you read that chapter, it's clear that renewing the kingdom is more about God than it is the king. In fact, listen to just one verse from chapter 12, verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and your king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. So, Do you hear the emphasis there? Renewing the kingdom requires renewed allegiance not to the king, but to God. And that's what is happening here in verse 14. The people unite behind Saul even as Saul humbles himself before the Lord. There may be dark days ahead for Saul's reign, but at this point, the kingdom works as it should. Finally, the last piece of the picture, the joyful worship of God. Look at verse 15. There's a nationwide religious ceremony. Sacrifices are offered in response to God's deliverance and the Lord receives from His people what belongs to Him. He receives their worship. But notice how this worship is described. Don't don't miss this, friends. Look at the end of the verse. Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. You see, this wasn't a heartless ceremony where the people went through the motions to appease God. We often think of the Old Testament in these really stark and austere colors and pictures, but here it's bright, it's vivid, it's joyful. This isn't heartless. This was a celebration. Thanksgiving and gratitude to God are welling up and overflowing from the people's lives with unbridled joy. You see, this is how God intended life to be. Humble praise combined with renewed allegiance all producing joyful worship among the people of God. Friends, what a helpful reminder this should be for us for a brief moment in time. Israel gets it right. Here they are at Gilgal, and they've gotten what they want. They've gotten a king, and yet what is it that gives them their deepest joy? Not the king, but the Lord. Do you see how God is working, friends? He's doing whatever it takes to show His people that He alone satisfies, that He alone is their treasure. How important it is that we hear this reminder. Joy is not found in getting what we want or even what we think we need. Joy is the fruit of having God and believing that He alone is enough. So ask yourself, friends ask yourself, do I believe that God is the one indispensable ingredient for my joy? Or, Have you slowly come to think that what you need is something other than God? More time, better circumstances, different job, new relationship, anything other than God? Again, we're far more like Israel than we care to admit. They thought a king would make them happy, so what does God do? He gives them a king in order to show them that He alone satisfies. What about us? Will we learn from Israel's life We cannot hear this enough. Only God satisfies. Only God brings joy that endures. That doesn't mean that it's easy, but it is true. And mercifully, the Lord will keep pressing this truth upon our hearts until we can finally say with the psalmist, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. God, would You make this true of us. Keep pursuing us until we both know and display the joy of living under Your reign. Well, if you remember at the outset of the message, we said the theme of this chapter was that salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the overarching truth of the Bible. And it's the truth that shines blazing at the center of this text. Think think about how this chapter has unfolded. It began with God's people facing oppression so powerful they could not save themselves. They were helpless and hopeless. They were entirely dependent on salvation being provided for them from the outside. Then through the work of God's Spirit that salvation came. God raised up a deliverer who did for them what they could not do for themselves. He broke the oppression and freed God's people from certain slavery. And what was the fruit? Joyful worship that glorified God and proclaimed Him as the only God who saves. That's what happened in 1 Samuel 11. It was a real event that happened in history with real people and brought salvation to God's people. And yet, brothers and sisters, is this not also a wonderful picture of what has happened to us in the gospel? We too were hopeless and helpless, facing an enemy we could not overcome. We too were entirely dependent on salvation being provided for us. For we certainly could not save ourselves. And amazingly, astonishingly, we too have tasted the Spirit's work to save. If you love Christ today, it's because the Spirit invaded your heart, gave you new life, and then opened your eyes to see Christ the King. That's incredible news. That's reason for joy. And now what's the fruit of our lives? The joyful worship to God, together as His people, proclaiming His glory, spreading His fame, building up His church. Friends, do you see the gospel picture? This real historical moment from Israel's past pictures how God works. He saves the helpless through the work of His Spirit so that He gets the glory. Truly then, we can join with the people of God in 1 Samuel 11 in raising our voices to declare this great truth that salvation belongs only to the Lord. Amen? Let's pray. Father, You are certainly the God who saves. And You alone can free Your people from oppression, darkness, sin, death, and hell. And You have done this, Father, not because of any worth in us, but solely, Father, because You are gracious. We praise You, God, that Your ways have been seen from the beginning of time until now. And that You have given us, Father, these shadows and pictures of redemption, all of which culminate in the work of Your Son. We pray, Father, that He would receive the praise and the glory from our lives that is His due. And we ask, God, we plead that You would help us to simply walk by faith until the day we see Him face to face. We pray in His name. Amen. Would you all please stand and sing?